1: Ladies and gentlemen, Uh,
0: can I please have your attention? Daniel, (laughs) greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, talking about the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Uh, Come on by the Dispatch, check out our wares. Uh, This is the season of gift giving. I'll talk a little bit more about that later. And you know, one of the great things about a gift subscription to the Dispatch is. There's no way it gets caught up in supply chain woes. So um, so if you can do that, that would be wonderful. That would be good for us. Good for you. Good for America. Good for the universe. And um, we would really appreciate it. And I'll talk a little bit more about, about that at the end. Okay, so I'm very excited about today's guest. Um, uh, she's a returning guest. Um, I have told her she has a standing invitation to come on anytime she wants. And, and she finally decided to take me up on it, having written some really interesting stuff. Um, and uh, she's a colleague at the American Enterprise Institute. She is a lecturer at Yale. She's a visiting professor at Columbia. She has done some amazing uh, work on, uh, with, with drug treatment and opioid stuff, and, I, and we talked to her a little bit about that the last time she was on. It is uh, Sally Sattel, and, and I will say, just because I know some of you are asking, She's not one of my favorite people just because she can uh, prescribe things, um, because she actually has never prescribed me anything, despite all of the baked goods I leave at her office. So, Sally, welcome back to The Remnant.
1: Thank you, Jonah.
0: Um, so, uh, I often tell listeners they should read the stuff in the show notes or check out stuff in the show notes, but in this case, they should really check out the stuff in the show notes the articles that you wrote um, for Colette. Um about basically what the hell is happening to your profession. So um, why don't we start there? What the hell is happening to right. your profession?
1: <laughs> well, um, it's really um, moving towards a social justice perspective. Um, I mean, it's certainly not complete domination. It's a trend. It's it's a, um, a worrisome trend. And it's, it's a very, very... Um, disturbing uh, ex- institutional experiment. In other words, basically, uh, especially according to the American Medical Association, which uh, a month ago came out with its, uh, an equity guide, um, the thrust of medicine should now be social justice and doctors should, should assume an activist posture. The emphasis, at least in theory, is, is take, taken more off the individual and, and put on group. Um, group identity and of course, especially a pre- oppressed group identity. Um, now, how this is going to manifest in patient care, it's not it's not clear to me yet. Um, I certainly, uh, you know, as we go on, I will talk about some horror stories and and uh, but but I don't think uh, obviously the ones that make the news sound like it's cherry picking, and they are the ones mm-hmm. that have um, poked above the you know the parapet, but. Um, I don't think I think this is more of a tip of an iceberg phenomenon than a, a than an end of a bell curve phenomenon.
0: Yeah, let me, let me let me read from one of your articles about this AMA thing. Um, you write, "The latest manifestation of indoctrinology um, is, which is a term you first used in PCMD like
1: twenty years, a, a while ago." <laughs>
0: um, uh, the latest manifestation of indoctrinology is a fifty-four page document from the American Medical Association called "Advancing Health Equity." A Guide to Language, Narrative, and Concepts, which already makes me nervous. The guide condemns several, quote, dominant narratives, unquote, in medicine. One is the, quote, narrative of individu- of individualism and its misbegotten corollary, the notion that health is a personal responsibility. A more, quote, unquote, equitable narrative, the guide instructs, would would, quote, expose the political roots underlying apparently natural economic arrangements such as property rights, market conditions, gentrification, oligopolies, and low wage rates, unquote. The dominant narratives, says the AMA, quote, create harm, undermining public health and the advancement of health equity. They must be named, disrupted, and corrected, unquote. Now, it's funny when, as you know, because you listen to this podcast and you know where I come from on these things. Um, I think that, uh, you know, I'm one of these guys who wants to maintain classical liberalism and there are different, it's, it occurred to me just while reading this part that like there are different academic or, uh, or, uh, scientific or social scientific disciplines, you know, um, out there. And it seems to me that medicine, particularly psychiatry, um, which have always had sort of social aspects to them, but at the where the rubber meets the road, they're, they're kind of like the most classically liberal disciplines because you, the the essence of classical liberalism properly understood is you're supposed to take the individual as you find them, right? That, that the individual is the irreducible unit of society and that you cannot draw sweeping conclusions about what one individual is because they belong to an abstract group or because you want to lump them together in some sort of category. If you don't treat people, if you don't treat the patient where you find them, you're not going to be treating the patient well. And it seems to me this is exactly the opposite yes. of what they're calling for.
1: Yes, it's a com- completely antithetical to the spirit of medicine, the Hippocratic Oath. Um, it, uh, in fact, I agree. I've I've often said um, psychiatry and medicine in general, but psychiatry is the ultimate personalized medicine. Right. And because um, fa- people are weird, right? <laughs> I mean, I, I, I don't
0: mean that. I mean a little pejoratively, but people. They're
1: idiosyncratic, of course. Everyone's got their own
0: stuff, right? And you can't make guesses about one person's stuff based upon what you know about another person's
1: stuff. And not only have they got their own stuff, they've got it in their own context, Mm -hmm. and they've got it with their own set of resources and their own expectations and their own sense of their... Kind of sense of uh, the, the technical term is, is efficacy but you know how much they can influence their environment yeah. all this kind of thing and um you know a good illustration of uh well that's what we do as psychiatrists we try to show people where they do have these the remnants so to speak of, mm-hmm. of agency and and how to expand them to have a sense of control and that kind of brings me to just one um of many but one example that i was sort of personally involved with in, in terms of this this general um you know change of, uh, of 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 attitude i was i gave a lecture at um this was at yale and i wrote about this in the Quillette article and um i um talked about my year in ohio mm-hmm. so a lot of it was on addiction And I talked about the aspects of personal agency and addiction. But since obviously I was in an area which is sort of, you you look up death of despair in the dictionary and you see this poor little town. And um, so, of course, I uh, talked about the uh, uh, industries that had fled, although they'd fled in the 80s. They'd Almost completed their their flight. It wasn't a town where one big industry just walked out the door. I mean, it was a, a, a slow um, um devolution of 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 industry. So, anyway, talked all about these these kinds of, of influences. But I also again mentioned um, uh, addiction as as a um you know a complicated behavioral phenomenon, but one in which there are elements of choice. And mm-hmm. so after the talk, um, it was um kind of assailed (laughs) for daring to um, bring up the fact that there's there's agency there's Mm -hmm. personal responsibility and if you take uh, much of what is written in the AMA and much I mean the AMA is in in some ways a little late to the party they've kind of codified what's been going on in in many uh, medical schools and in some of the literature and medical journals especially a journal called academic medicine which is devoted largely to to teaching in medical schools um then you would not expect uh, a doctor to educate a person with diabetes about how to take care of their diet and how to um you know they need to exercise and these kinds of things to have some expectations of people taking care of themselves now i honestly can't imagine it could get that far yeah um but um but that is but that is the natural extension. But the way that it does manifest, for example, is a real chill on the kinds of conversations uh, that um, colleagues can have, that students and residents and and faculty members can have about the causes of what are called health disparities, which are um, differences in access to healthcare, differences in um, health status between minority groups. And um, again, some places are much more accommodating than others but at their worst uh there's really an intolerance for any explanation other than systemic racism uh one example we should just we should we should
0: close the circle on this because you brought up how you talked at yale and then you brought up you wrote about this in the piece um you got in trouble for saying these things right i mean you got in trouble you didn't get fired you didn't get lynched or anything like that but you, say, you write, a month late, one month later, I received an email from the chairman of the department, a fine and brilliant researcher whom I have known since we were interns together in the 1980s. He admitted that he had not anticipated, quote, the extent of the hurt and offense that folks would take, unquote, to my presence. He, he appended an anonymous complaint that he had received from an unspecified number of, quote, concerned Yale psychiatry residents. And they go on to talk about how This was particularly traumatizing because it was only two days after the January 6th attack because apparently non sequiturs are very traumatizing. Um, They wrote that the the language Dr. Sattel used in her presentation was dehumanizing, demeaning, and classicist towards individuals living in rural Ohio and for rural populations in general. We find her canon to be beyond a difference of opinion worth debate. Um, And instead they go on to talk about racism and classism and all sorts of other nonsense
1: that yeah. To you. Well, maybe a no. tiny bit more context than, uh, <laughs> because I did say more, uh, certainly th- than the comment about, um, you know, addiction and, and agency. Um, but it was, first they objected to the title, which mm-hmm. was um, My Year Abroad, and then the name of the town, Ironton, Ohio, and then um, some lessons from the opioid epidemic. And, um, you know, My Year Abroad, it's almost a trope, Well mm-hmm. it is. Mm-hmm. And it usually, usually, kind of indicates affection for whatever it was you did during right. that year and you're going to you know an optimism i'm going to a new place to learn something and also and, gets
0: it points to the cultural divide in the well, country exactly you know? and
1: that was the that was the irony that here we live in one country and yet there's so many right. differences of of the way people live and what's important and they're struck i never even lived in a small town in my life i mean yeah. that was probably the most the most i learned i yeah. didn't learn that much about addiction to be honest because there's a lot of universals there. Right. But, um, uh, so that, that title was upset. I was othering. And then, um, I showed some s- pictures that I took, none of them of people in, in distress. They were all of, but they were of landscapes in sure. distress, you know, these haunted industrial, um, places and this very lonely downtown. And, um, and then I talked about the big very big web of causation in the opioid epidemic and it you know which has almost cartoonishly been reduced to Purdue which mm-hmm. had its role no question but it's much more complicated sure. than that I mentioned the addiction before anyway and that so that led to um, some I still don't know what it was I said because I, I really like those people a lot and I'm still in touch with them and um, and then they looked up some uh, other things that I had written in the past uh, somewhere on um dis- Health disparities. Um, in fact, one article uh, monograph was what did with Jonathan Click. I don't know if that name is familiar to most people, but he's a very um, brilliant um, economic, He's a law professor at um, University of Pennsylvania with an economic. He has an economics degree, um, and in 2006, in fact, our monograph was called "The Health Disparities Myth." Now, of course, mm-hmm. that's provocative. Right. Health disparities certainly exist a, a population level but um, the specific question we were addressing which is not an issue so much anymore um, i like to think we kind of settled it but <laughs> is that um, doctors themselves as individuals are are racist and mm-hmm. so we went through the literature purporting to show that and we dismantled <laughs> common word these days um you know every article that right. said to show that so um And but they went through that and found what they thought was were offending statements. So that's where the racism anyway. And they did ask the chairman to revoke my um, appointment. And he he didn't. So I really credit him with that. But um, but but it's you know, I have so much affection for that place. And I got a wonderful education. And it's really it's it's just changed. Um, People are walking on eggshells. Uh, I've heard this from other, um, medical schools, not, not just colleagues at Yale, but, um, to the extent that faculty members have some discretion about how much teaching they do, Mm -hmm. um, they say, well, you know, maybe I'll back off a little bit because it's, it's a minefield. Anything could, you never know when you're going to utter a microaggression and they have a DEI person who's, um, they always seem to be open for business and, um, and so it's 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 really pernicious what it's done to the ability to even talk through problems. And that's where I was going to give you an example yeah. of. Yeah. Is um, a colleague of mine. And this was not at Yale. I believe every I've done talking about you okay? because I want to sh- we'll suggest that, that it's yeah. it's but far more um, widespread. Um, is um, they were having discussion about the increase in depression and suicide in young black men. Now, I still think the rate is lower than um, white men, uh, young white men, but the increase is, is dramatic. Mm-hmm. And um, so in this conversation, the only variables that were allowed to be considered uh, were uh, police brutality and uh, systemic racism. And I'm not even ruling those out, just saying that's really limiting the conversation. Right. And, you know, she said, well, you know, what about I have a patient, for example, who's, you know, horribly bullied at school. Right. And apparently, well, that's true, I think, universally, but it's still it's very much a problem in minority schools as well. Um, And she said, and there's, you know, the violence in the neighborhoods, which is, most of it perpetrated by people in the neighborhood right. is horrific, and kids are pressured to join gangs, and and it's awful. And she was, you know, largely told, "No, sorry, <laughs> <laughs> we have to limit it to the to these variables." So it's, it, I mean, it's, uh, let's
0: get a little diagnostic for a second, because you know, I, I wrote about this a couple of weeks ago. Um, I happened to hear this climate this atmospheric sciences hmm. uh professor or Dorian academic Abbott. uh yeah. Dorian at, Abbott. was that her name I his can, name his no 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 this is oh, somebody else yeah yeah mm-hmm. this is somebody else and and at who's at stanford and um and i happened to hear her on this radio show because i was driving around in the pacific northwest and was picking up weird public radio stations and she spoke Fluently in the language of systems of oppression, of, of oppression, intersectionality. Um, uh, I it was the first time I ever heard anybody use the phrase minoritized peoples. Um, and she's in climate science. Like it just there's like it's just the, like the, just the, the amount of wasted intellectual resources dedicated to learning the shibboleths and the language of this, this sort of social justice stuff is amazing. And you find this across. Oh, that, that's Dorian Abbott, the the Chicago guy at MIT. You're talking about, yeah. Like the 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 the, the question I've got, and it's it's, a, it's basically a psychological or a psychiatric kind of question, is why is this generation so susceptible to this, or why are our institutions forget this generation, right? Because I mean, I do think there's a certain amount of sort of cultural revolution where they make the elders go around in their dunce caps and denounce their, their fellow traveling ways. But what, what about this moment explains why you have almost this, like this tulip bowl mania of social justice stuff going through our elite institutions. Um, Do you have a theory? I mean, is it, do you think the Jonathan Haidt, Greg Lucano stuff about how it's, we're raising kids to be fragile and you know, the, or what I mean?
1: Well, f- first, it's it's rarely any one thing. So right, I agree fair. with them. Uh, I, I I think um, obviously the I hate to use a cliche myself, but the tribal s- signaling pressure and, and and affinity is is great. There's clearly a generational thing. Like colleagues my age, or you know maybe over forty, um, just bristle at so much of of what I've just yeah. we've just talked about. Um, and certainly, colleagues younger too. I mean, I get emails from people. Don't breathe my name, but you know, <laughs> and no one will go on the record hardly yeah. unless they're in private practice or they're retired. Yeah. Um, but there's no question; it's more accepted among young younger. But I had I had one other uh, thought that I that I hadn't heard before. I mean, it could have maybe out there, but I hear it is because uh, someone was saying to me, "Well, why doesn't the person in charge just say?"
0: Cut it out. Cut it out.
1: Yeah. And it's because I think in um, as part of this whole kind of culture, there's such contempt for hierarchy Mm -hmm. that in a lot of places, no one really is in charge. Yeah. And when you have then a group in charge, then that group is is clearly going to be diverse because that goes and I mean, ideologically diverse goes with that, um, you know, goes with that whole um, sentiment. And you're going to have the the scary bullying people, uh, pretty much setting the agenda. Yeah. And so the person they may push out in front of the microphone, um, you know, may not be may or may not be on board, but is going to you know mouth those platitudes because he or she really isn't in charge.
0: No, yeah, it's a good point. I mean, I, this is it kind of dovetails a little bit with my all my stuff about the weakness of political parties and that. Historically political scientists would talk about democracy between the parties, not within the parties, right? And one of the problems we have, it's a very levin kind of point, is that we may not have done it with formal mechanisms, but we're kind of democratizing all of our institutions. So at the New York yeah. Times, my understanding is that, you know, a lot of the older editors and stuff, they're just terrified of the young people. And the young people in like in their internal Slack channels, they, you know, they open it up to like members of the the printer's union or whatever. So it's like, cause you can't have these artificial barriers. Right. And so you get all sorts of people just fuming like campus kids in the 1960s about the, about the administration. And then it, it boils over internally and you see this, I mean, I, I don't want to get friends of mine in trouble, but you know, there are just an enormous number of people sort of gen X and above who are now going into management positions who are just terrified of their younger staffs. So and I think it's a big thing in media, I think it's a, probably a big thing in higher education and it's weird, you know, I mean, it's, 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 it's just straight. I mean, like we just maintain morale by continually beating up our young staff and it mm-hmm. works out fine. I just don't know why we have to, you know, why other people can't follow our best
1: practices. No, I agree. I think, I think uh, some of the medical faculty are a little afraid of the, yeah. it's, it's, it's a very, it's a pernicious environment in that sense. Um, but I, I, sh- I should say that you know, there's, um, there's a, a kernel of truth um, to what to some of the objections like for example putting a putting the best spin on that the the objection to my talking about agency and addiction i mean this this person clearly got it all wrong because i very much gave credit to external factors as well Mm -hmm. but that um you know when i was because when i was in medical school there wasn't that much discussion of uh i mean psychiatry There are certain fields that you kind of can't help understand the context. Psychiatry is one. Mm. Pediatrics is one. I mean, the mom brings a kid in every month with, you know, um, an exacerbation of asthma because they live in a housing project where no one got rid of the roaches. And we know that they produce allergens and stuff you know, you, you can't divorce the patient as easily as you might if you're a radiologist or a surgeon or, a, you know, an anesthesiologist from, from the environment. And that's true in um, primary care as well. And if you're working in ER and people are coming in with gunshots, you know, you might be thinking about gun poly- gun control. Right. I, un- I understand all that. But I consider those internal critiques, you know, how can we make things better from the inside? Right. I think what we're seeing more of now is just external critiques, the changing of the whole mission of again medicine and and um, and what our focus is. No, it's always the individual, um, but but the the core. Um, uh, what a, a, started to say that that is um, true, is a phenomenon called, has a name, social determinants of health. Mm-hmm. And and that's a true thing. And and um, in general, we as medical students, we didn't learn that much about it. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> embarrassing to say how long ago this was. but <laughs> and, and I think that's a constructive thing, that there's been a lot more emphasis on making sure that doctors understand the psychological, social, and cultural contexts that do contribute to disease and shape what kind of choices patients can people can make about their health that's important and we and for a while we weren't paying enough attention to that so so that's a positive thing but right now we're being urged to go so far upstream uh so distant from medic from medicine i mean medicine's always been politicized but again it's an internal critique it's do we have um you know single payer or more free market and and all the debates in between and that's constructive i think doctors should be involved. It's perfectly fine that doctors are involved in those debates. Um, but when they're on, you know, a campaign to dismantle racism for well, I don't even know what that not being coy, I'm not really even sure what that right. means. Um uh they can do that, you know, they're citizens, they can certainly pursue these things on their own time. But that whole list of things you read at the beginning um, uh, you know, property rights, market conditions, um, low wage rates, this kind of thing, um, is just not something that doctors, I'll say, should get involved in as part of their mission. Right. Again, as private citizens, that's fine. And that's because we don't even have enough time to do what we know how to do, which is diagnose and treat. That is our job. And the more upstream we get, the more we dilute our, our efforts, the more we abuse our authority, what do I know about housing policy? Nothing. Right, right. And, and, it's, and it's presumptuous and arrogant to uh, say, because I'm a doctor, I have some idea. Now, I can say because I'm a doctor and I see all these young kids come in with asthma that something's got to change. Right. And if I'm in a school of epidemiology, it's very constructive if I quantify that and, and, uh, <clears throat> and publish it. That's all very important stuff. But um, to me, that's where it ends because we don't have any expertise we're lying if we say we do we abuse public trust and that's the direction in which we're being pushed
0: yeah i want to i want to get to that but it seems to be you know, the point you're making and it's very clear when i when i read your stuff and partly it's because i know you and um but like of course there's racism and of course there's this thing you know there are there are elements of systemic racism depend we have to have a we could have a long conversation about what that actually means and what it doesn't. But, um, you know, disparate outcomes for inner city black populations are a real thing for all sorts of, on all sorts of indicia or whatever. Right. And so the thing that drives me crazy, it it gets back to what you were saying uh, before when I asked you what your explanation for what this sort of Gramscian takeover of institutions is about is you said, I don't think, you said I don't think it's one thing. And this is a big theme of mine is I I hate all monocausal explanations of anything. And so I think that the good faith stuff that the social justice types bring up, um, a lot of it is a necessary but not sufficient part of the conversation, right? I mean, it's like, of course, racism can a play can play a role in this situation, but maybe not in that situation, or maybe it plays a minor role here and a major role there. And um, if you reduce everything down to single ideolo- monocausal ideological explanations of things, it's just impossible not to like gloss over people's real pains and suffering that you might be able to deal with if you actually listen to what's going on. I doubt there's a single African-American teacher worth their salt in any school in America who has an all-African-American class who thinks that each kid's in, each kid in that class is interchangeable with the other and that all of their problems stem simply from racism, right? I mean, I don't know yeah. who that person would be. And yet, when you abstract out to this stuff, that's what basically they're arguing, is that it's it's one explanation for everything.
1: Oh, yeah. Well, anything that explains everything pretty much explains nothing. Exactly. Um, and, you know, just as you said, I- I'll stipulate s- systemic racism. I hate to say it. The way we're saying it, it sounds like it's a key on the typewriter already. Yeah, just yeah, press yeah. systemic <laughs> racism. But, um, I mean... <laughs> Clearly, why wouldn't so many <laughs> decades and centuries of oppression still have residual? I mean, sure. so that's the question. Then is all right. Even if I accept your your pseudo explanation, or you're you're just not very um, useful explanation. To be right. honest, it doesn't yield prescriptions. Um, or actionable prescriptions for a doctor, <laughs> um, then what do I do about it? And of course, their answer is become an activist. And my answer is no, <laughs> we do things that are much more proximate to medicine and they're not the seeds of revolution, but there are all kinds of you know, creative approaches out there that have been going on for you know, quite a while like keep a public clinic open late at night yeah. so people can who work during the day. I mean, th- mundane things like that. You know, integrate the care better so a person doesn't have to go across the town for that x-ray and then there for a blood test. Um, go to barbershops, go to churches. Um, and these things help. Mm-hmm. If, are they the answer to everything? No, but what might be the answer to everything is, again, not something that the medical profession can affect. We can point it out. We, we should be able to show you know as as carefully as as we can how it has an effect I, that's a totally legitimate arena for for research and demonstration but but our efforts stop where we get too distant from you know our expertise
0: yeah so I mean, I, and you did it, you didn't get into this in these these articles and for all I know this will never reach this will never air <laughs> this question but like uh, it seems to me that the most glaring example of the triumph of a sort of an ideological agenda over basic medical and biological truths is some of the transgender stuff. And I have, you know, I know some transgender people. I I, I do not like the idea of hurting people's individual feelings and all these kinds of things. But the notion that um, medicine hasn't law. I, I, I also don't like the term settled science, but it seems to me that the categories in nature of male and female, um, fairly settled science. And that it's, if you want to get very Foucauldian and talk about how gender is different than sex, that's fine. But it seems to me that we're moving to a place where you're not allowed to acknowledge the bio, those biological realities. You know, we have members of Congress talking about birthing persons and whatnot. And, um, um, I'm very much let people live the way they want to live, but it seems to me science, medical science is going down a weird path if it's not allowed to without apology, talk about male and female as, as, as existing categories that mean something.
1: Well, I certainly agree. Um, I haven't, you know, I haven't done a deep dive into that because so many other people have done such yeah. a good job. I guess I would say that the only, to the extent there is a silver lining in that hole, well, I'm thinking of even the transgender, you know, the treatment of it's mostly young girls these days yeah. who seem to want to transition. Um, the, the good news there is that it does have some very vocal um, uh, people who are exposing this. And... Um, Frankly, parents are concerned. This is not hidden. I mean, yeah. what's going on in medical school? No one really knows about it. But what's happening to, to um, you know, some young women is not hidden. And uh, and I think that it, I'm not saying that some of the legislatures at the state level are doing the right thing, pushing back the way they have. But at least there is really active discussion about that, and um, and that's uh, that, that's one sort of virtue. I, yeah, if that's the right word of of that whole of that whole mess is that it's not it's it's that it's exposed but um you know these are going to take these trends are going to take a while to um i I, one hopes it does reverse in terms of 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 transgender Mm -hmm. um with a residual sensitivity to the fact that um you know there are some people who certainly are i mean yes there's ex genetically there's there's sex and that's really that's it but gender there's always been a i've always thought that was a a large spectrum but you know the more rigid societies are the more you're kind of forced to identify and live as one or the other Mm -hmm. and and the less so the more people get to express and and live in these in in that along that spectrum and like you that's just fine but don't pressure kids into this don't My gosh, don't be aggressive with premature with surgery. Yeah. And
0: so I have a friend who I can, I'll keep this very generic to spare everybody. But um, I have a friend uh, on the West Coast whose kid's school had a like sexual orientation week and we're talking about grade school, you know, and or sexual awareness week. I can't remember what the title of it was. And they would go around and ask nine and 10 year old kids what. You know like these probing questions and one they asked you know one of the, my friend's son was like do you like boys or girls now i come from a certain generation that so when you're like nine or ten years old the correct answer to do you like girls is no they're gross um but uh kids being smart and knowing that they're trying to get an answer out of them that's you know you know my friend's son said you know um i don't know and they said oh okay so you belong you, you your label is questioning and the thing i take offense to about all of this is i mean there are many things i take offense to but it's just it is the introduction of ideological categories and um this premature imposition of sexual identity when and i i honestly think that that some of the girls going to the transition stuff has to do with what we used to just call tomboy behavior, and now they're, they're given this new ideologically exciting category to jump into, and so there's a certain amount of social contagion to it. Anyway, I, you know, I, we don't have to get deeper in the weeds and all that. I do want to ask you, though, because you wrote about it recently, I think it was for The Atlantic, right, um, about Theodore Adorno and left-wing authoritarianism stuff, and I, I don't want to leave all of this either, but... This has always been sort of an obsession of mine, Um, uh, the the susceptibility of psychiatry and psychology to political movements. I mean, the content of the social justice stuff you're writing about now is new. The phenomenon of psychiatrists and psychologists and and doctors in general getting swept up in sort of larger political causes and crusades is really pretty old and probably… I don't know when it begins but it's it's at least a century old. Is there's is there something about the profession that there's the I don't want to sound like Alec Baldwin in that bad movie saying I am God. But is there something about being a doctor that makes you since you're so smart and so have so much power in one realm of life that you that some people can't stay in their lanes and they extrapolate and have god complexes about the world? I'm talking here about of course about Howard Dean. No, but anyway, <laughs> take this anywhere you want to go. Um
1: well, You know, I I actually wrote a a kind of lengthy piece in um, a a magazine called Liberties, which I really tried to take this um, take uh, at the time I called it a CRT. Critical race theory meets medicine, something like that. Oh, mm-hmm. critical race theory and medicine, and um, even that term now is you have know, to qualify what you mean. Right. But basically, everything we've been talking about before is is what I mean. But um, Ben, I started with in 1848, um, kind of an auspicious year, but. Um, <laughs> And uh, with a uh, Prussian doctor named Rudolf Verkel, mm-hmm. who was a very famous. I mean, actually, he was polymathic. I mean, he spoke uh, twelve languages and um, was a very famous pathologist. And we still, um, his his major textbook is still. I mean, it's been revised a lot, but it's it's sometimes still used. Um, and he was also uh, in the house of. Um, uh, the government. I mean, he was an amazing person, but when he was, um, only 26, I think he was, uh, tapped to, um, investigate a typhus epidemic in upper Silesia, which I guess is now Poland. Yeah. I guess and, so. um, and, you know, in those days there was no, really, there was no medicine. Mm-hmm. Um, we didn't have anything resembling medicine. We had opium. Thank God. <laughs> and, um, and, and, so of course he saw the social conditions and um and he bl- even blamed the catholic church for keeping um th- keeping the the citizens uh they didn't educate them effectively mm-hmm. and so they were ignorant and of course they were you know oppressed and they were li- there was, that was a mining town as well so those conditions were awful and um and he'd read um you know he had read marx and engels and he he read um uh, a british um, lawyer named Chadwick, but he'd done uh, work on, um, you know, fa- the way factories and other social conditions uh, affect health. And there, there was, it was just porous between the environment and health. Mm-hmm. And that really led to the first public health movement, which was the sanitation movement. Mm-hmm. I mean, you've got to get rid of waste. You've got to right. have drainage. you've um, And then food inspection, which for Cal was also uh, one of the, the pioneers in that. Um, you know, and then we move on to the antibiotic and then the lifestyle and the prevention uh, um, eras. And then now the one we're kind of in now, which is that oppression is, is, is the cause of your um, health. But um, so doctors have, uh, you know, started out really honestly um, uh, paying a lot of attention to the circumstances in which people live because those had really direct sure. impact. That makes sense. Um, and so there's, there's been that strain and it's very big in public health. It's becoming bigger in medicine, and um, uh, you know. So I think there, I think there is some of that. Uh, And then remember, who's who's speaking up? It's it's not the guys in the lab. It's not the it's not the people developing the COVID vaccine. Yeah, it's um, uh, folks who. Well, I mentioned those three specialties before. And if you now, now a lot of medicine is largely. you know, left leaning, mm-hmm. but, um, it would be, you'd mostly find surgeons who were conservatives in the old right. days and the AMA was mostly conservative. And even recently it was against Medicare for all. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, it's also th- those who, the folks who come forward and the ones who see medicine as, um, like say another form almost of civil rights. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and I, I can see that, yeah. but, um, uh, but once they're in medicine, they're sort of, you know, acting again as physicians and they can be activists on their own time. Lately, we're seeing a kind of bleeding of those two things together, how it's actually actually going to manifest. I mean, are people going to um, uh, outside of the counseling profession, which mm-hmm. well, I know you're on authoritarianism, so we might want to <laughs> get back to that. No, it's fine. But I hope no, we no, can this, also this touch on the counseling yeah, profession, yeah, 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 which yeah. I want to say, thank goodness, is still different from psychiatry in terms of what's going on there. But. That is an example where this ideology is truly brought into the examining room as yeah. it was. I, I don't know if it's how it's how or if it's going to be brought into direct contact with patients. I think it's it's so far, it's largely, again, contaminating what we can talk about. There was a professor whose paper was retracted because he did a, a very exhaustive review of affirmative action, but he came up with the wrong conclusion mm-hmm. that maybe it's not. Um, maybe it's diminishing the quality of medicine. He was stripped. This is at the University of Pittsburgh Medical School. He was stripped of his direct, direct direct. He directed a fellowship in electrophysiology. He was denounced. He his paper was retracted
0: without his permission. Without right. his
1: permission. He yeah. now he's suing. You know, good for him. But um, so you know, there are these kind of manifestations and. Uh, I'll just say one more thing about a manifestation because I really want to make my case that this is yeah, a... absolutely. This is a... Um, I'm not trying to take you off of oh, it. You you're know, not, so. you know, a big thing. Um, I, I just want to read something. If I can find it, I just had it. Yeah, that's going on at the University of Michigan and not just at the University of Michigan um, where now they have really... Now, they have really intruded into clinical training, which mm-hmm. is not limited to Michigan, but they've articulated it so well. So, for example... Um, their plan is to, during the first two years of medical school, when you take physiology and, and um, uh, anatomy and neuroanatomy and microbiology and histology and you're busy as hell and you're starting to learn how to interview patients and do physical exams, now apparently we, we need time off for um, anti-racism, critical race theory, health justice, intersectionality, resident education, based on um, Ibram Kendi's stamp from the beginning book. Um, Another um, objective is that faculty have to spend time, inclusion of dedicated time and resources for them to, uh, and learners for leadership, uh, professional advocacy in these areas. Mm -hmm. I mean, what are we, we're displacing things we need to know. Um, It's it's just uh, very, uh, very unhealthy.
0: I mean, one way to sort of illustrate the point is imagine you're in a, graduate program, that's basically a social justice program, a social work kind of thing. And you made the grad students do, you know, basic biology. People say, why do I need to know this? Yeah. You know, but like it's it doesn't work. It doesn't go both ways. I mean, I'll give you a better example. I was, and my apologies to both people from Kansas and people from Nebraska, I can't remember which it was. I think it was Kansas. But I was in Kansas giving a talk at a university and this guy in the coffee shop, while I was preparing my notes, came up to me and said, uh, are you Jonah Goldberg? And I said, yeah. And he said, so. Oh. And we started chatting, whatever. And he said, he was telling me how he's a, a cop who uh, went back to grad school to get a degree in criminal justice, a master's yeah. in criminal justice, because he wanted to move up, you know, wherever. And, and he said, and he was just telling me how amazing, how little of the curriculum was criminal justice and how much of it was social justice and um and it seems to me you can go through education schools you can go through a lot of these places and the coursework is more about this one monocausal Mm. ideological obsession than it is about the actual specialties and i i suspect i don't know this for sure but i suspect that's probably true of most journalism schools today too Mm.
1: Um, it, it could be I, I will just read you something there's a wonderful um, website for folks interested in this uh, with respect to the counseling profession it's called critical therapy antidote it's actually british but um people contribute from you know all over actually in australia this is a problem in the uk it's mm-hmm. really a problem and obviously here it is so one of these um uh and most people write anonymously understandably i yeah. never criticize someone for not wanting to to speak out you um, have too much it's, There's a lot at stake anyway um <laughs> he says my mat his t- his essay was called my master's degree in counseling psychology taught me a lot about social justice mm-hmm. but very little about counseling or psychology um, two and a half years of quote incompetence and mediocrity at a cost of 70 thousand which teachers fell free yeah, to lecture their students about their political beliefs and their training uh, trainees were instructed on quote the dynamics of Microaggressions developing non racist anti white identity, but, but it gets worse because they bring that into the actual counseling session. Yeah. I mean, it's almost cartoonish. Uh, you, you probably look at me like I'm a little crazy, but um, <laughs> they actually will tell, uh, you know, a white, well, God help you if you're a white conservative male, yeah. because they will tell you. Right there, you know, stop the presses. You're a therapist just meeting someone. You don't tell anyone anything. You're there to listen and collect information and form a relationship, which is fragile at the beginning. And, um, but they will tell you that, um, your problems, Jonah Goldberg, you know, short of your being, you know, deeply mentally ill and needing symptom relief and medications and, um, is because you are part of an, you know, an oppressive patriarchy and, and your therapy is, is how to change. Mm -hmm. We're going to change you. And first we're going to make you of course aware of this. And then you must undergo change. If you're a minority, your problems all stem from the fact that you're oppressed this is, it's just a parody of therapy. Yeah. It doesn't lead to introspection. It enforces a victim um, mentality. If And if that's your real problem, then you don't need a counselor. You need a lawyer. You know, yeah. if yeah. you're really, you know, that, if, if at work, the reason why your boss is not treating you well, you think is because you're a minority and it's possible that happens, mm-hmm. then you need a damn lawyer. You don't need a. Yeah,
0: I I mean, I I don't want to drag my brother into, you know, but as we talked about before, my brother had addiction issues before he died. And and one of the sort of pathologies he got into was seeing himself as a victim of large, you know, almost conspiratorial forces that he was, and and it it gave him an excuse to give up on some agency kind of thing. Teaching people that incredibly powerful intergenerational forces um, are the – explanation for all of their problems isn't helping people i mean that's at the end of the day that's the cruelty of it is like you are giving people permission to wallow in self-pity and resentment when maybe there are like small little things you can do in your life that might actually make you a happier and more healthy person
1: and you don't even have to necessarily deny the fact that yeah that you are in certain situations that you didn't create and really are restrictive how can you adapt to it at the, at bottom? At, right. That's our bottom, uh, you know. But how can you change your environment? Sometimes you can. A lot of times you can't. But how can you change the way you cope with it? How can you change your circumstances just by leaving that environment? Um, and if heaven forbid you're stuck in it, are there ways to adapt to it? Yeah, um, sort of like the
0: AA oath, right? You know, take you know, help me deal with the things that can change. It's very whatever, stoic. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's but there's some merit to it. At least it yes, works for is. some people, right? You know, and. Um, I mean, that's that's the thing that's offensive, mo- fundamentally offensive to it about it is that it it actually. It's it's not just not listening to the Hippocratic Oath. It's it's actually harming people. It's malpractice. It's malpractice, yeah. and I'm
1: waiting for the you know. I've encouraged people to. Uh, I think there is one woman who is suing her counseling program for fraud. You know, mm-hmm. really not teaching what they said they would teach,
0: and good for her. So I have a another meta question for you. So I. One of the things I've, I've, read a lot about, I've written a lot about is, um, the concept of political religions. It's a term from philosopher, Eric Vergelen, but it's pretty familiar to a lot of people and crops up in all sorts of places. John McWhorter, who we both admire, talks about how anti-racism is essentially a religion. Um, and, um, it seems to me like that, that religious mindset, you know, the, the, the Imbram Kendi stuff. About how you can't just be not racist; you have to be anti-racist, right? Which basically says there is no safe harbor—that if if you're not with us on our agenda, then you are on the side of racists. Um, that's very similar to the sort of the, the the mindset of people like Adorno, that you know, and going back to Marx, that if you weren't actively with us, you were either a force of selfish and greedy privilege, or you had false consciousness and didn't realize your own class interests. And I guess the question I have for you is, is like, I think that is a very broadly speaking, a kind of religious mindset, but you could also just call it a tribal mindset. I mean, I I think the labels can distract us from the underlying phenomenon, but is that, is this sort of religious instinct stuff, Jonathan Haidt, you know, writes a lot about this kind of stuff in, in the, in the real world, in the trenches world of psychiatry, how relevant is that kind of analysis to individuals? Does it, does it matter if you use the word religion or is it just obsessive behavior or, I mean, what, what is the clinic? If, what is the clinical way to describe someone with these sort of ideological ob- obsessions that, and these blinders and that kind of thing?
1: Hmm. Uh, well, certainly there's nothing in the DSM about it. Uh,
0: I'm not sure there should be either because yeah, you no, get I in a lot of trouble. No, you know?
1: I, I mean, you know, there's obviously a continuum. Um, in other words, at, at one end of the spectrum, I mean, it, it could be, um, well, it could reach delusional proportions, mm. I, I suspect. Um, but I don't even want to use labels so much as to, you know, you try to understand, um, what function it's f- fulfilling in the person's life mm-hmm. and, and you don't need, um, you don't need jargon, you know, for that. Um, there's, um, you know, a lot of reasons that, again, you were the one who said at the very beginning, this is the ultimate individual enterprise. Right. So I don't know, for one person, it could just be, um, identification with, um, I mean, one of the concepts we learn in psychiatry is um, the word wasn't mimicry, but somehow that's the only thing coming into my mind, Um, um, sort of mimicry as an identification against loss. In other Mm -hmm. words, um, uh, oh, no, identification, excuse me, identification as a defense against loss. Mm -hmm. That's it. So, you know, you could have a young woman who was, you know, had a love relationship with someone. And he or she was involved in some kind of cause, and mm-hmm. then the person takes on that cause simply uh, as part of the whole romantic attachment. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Now, I, I can't generalize that in a sociological way, right, but right. that's as a psychiatrist the kind of things you know you try to understand. Is is this a person who's you know basically um, you know has been struggling with uh, identity? I don't mean sexual identity so much, but just sort of an identity. What's important to me? What do I value? And, um, you know, and along comes this pretty clean ideology. It's fairly totalizing. It comes with a, it comes with a social group attached right. and, and that looks appealing. And in that case, sometimes the, the type of social group it is, is irrelevant. It could be PETA, it could be the environment. It could be, um, you know, it could be anything, mm-hmm. um, even could be a radical conservative. It could be QAnon, right. you know, right, whatever. Right, right um and uh and i think also there's an enormous um uh drive an enormous you know desire for people to kind of feel exonerated yeah that um, whatever happened you know wasn't their fault and um and i think that uh you know this the ideologies that, that you just discussed could easily fit into those, those slots But, you know, I I really don't, I I really don't talk in large sociological sweep. I I much prefer this. How do we, you know, how do you work with, you know, work with individuals? Um, And I think everything, you know, we've been talking about so far is is perverting that effort. Yeah,
0: yeah. No, look, and I think psychiatrists and therapists and psychologists should basically just stay out of that lane, right? Let other people have that conversation and every now and then you can say, hey guys, you're you're just misinterpreting these, psychi- like you know, the literature or something. But it doesn't. I mean, you go back and you look at some of the ways in which psychology, in the past, or I shouldn't say psychology, but like psychiatry and really medicine, tried to settle democratically, settle policy issues, um, by an appeal to science and authority rather than actually working it out. You know, there was like this. The cult of expertise is a persistent mm-hmm. problem in democracies. Um, you know, was it Herbert Hoover ran for president in uh, 28 on the slogan, do you want a politician or an engineer running the country? There was this idea that engineers were, this was when social engineer, was a positive mm-hmm. term. <laughs> you know, um, this idea that technocratic people who, you know, the Walter Lippman disinterested, you know, uh, intellectual um, ideal made it sound as if, if you could just get the politicians and the messy democracy out of the way and just have experts run everything, it'd be okay. And the problem you run into is that experts are also parts of a class and they, they can get swept up in causes like like this cause or eugenics 100 years ago. Um, and in the same way that fish don't know they're wet, the experts don't know that they're carrying water for all sorts of ideological agendas.
1: Oh, right. And in psychiatry, it's, it's extra fraught because... Who's the one who's going to determine whether I'm mentally healthy or not? Mm-hmm. And that will always, you know, be a pall over the um, profession in terms of, uh, you know, that's why every time a new edition of the DSM comes out, <laughs> there's another fight. Right. Well, you know, why did you, why did you include this? Um, isn't this a variant of normal? And and. Uh, um, and how can this be used in a courtroom? Or how could this be used in, in my custody battle against me? And I mean, all these things are complicated. To be fair, the people who write the DSM are very aware of that. Yeah. But, uh, you know, the minute this gets into the public, and I'm sorry to say, sometimes even my colleagues, it gets very reductionist. Yeah. Um, but, you know, this kind of goes full circle back to that um, article about um, authoritarianism. It, it was what psychologists, the reason I I wrote it, and with all due respect i'm not you know i'm not politics isn't my thing no, 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 no. um but it's there's no question they're left-wing authoritarians no one would doubt that right. you just go to cuba but um uh but the construct the psychological construct was not really accepted within in psychology un- until fairly recently it's getting more uh, attention and then i wrote about an article that as you say you don't want to say anything settled but would s- seem to be it was such an exhaustive study uh, seems to have really taken um this reality the reality that this construct does exist on the left to another level of mm-hmm. um as settled as it might get although you know th- that that article is still uh, certainly uh, ripe for critique it's- itself but um but that's not what interested me so much uh about it it was the fact that it took this long for yeah. the social psychologists to acknowledge it and that's because as you said there's a monoculture right i mean expertise is one thing but when it's expertise of the same flavor right or left that's really problematic
0: yeah no the adorno stuff is always fascinating to me because um you know in the authoritarian personality um he basically just dismisses the idea that communism is authoritarian right and it goes back to this um, this standard point of view, which says that the left has a monopoly on political virtue. And so the further you move from the left, the more bad you are. And then you have people like in the 1950s, Herbert McCloskey, who was a political scientist, but he sort of picked up Ordono in, 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 in sort of the way that Hofstetter did as well. Um, and he wrote uh, conservatism as a personality trait, I think it was, in 58. And McCloskey has this... You know this argument that basically conservatism, as defined in 1958, which is like this very weak tea kind of conservatism, is is a disordered personality trait, and that therefore it's it it can be shunned and put aside in political discourse. And then you have in the 60s, what was it, a thousand, eleven hundred psychiatrists and psychologists? Oh, the Goldwater. Yeah, declared yeah. Goldwater was mentally unfit um, to run for president because. They disagreed with his foreign policy or whatever, you well, know. Well, I mean? actually, it was toilet training. Yeah. I mean it was
1: a very, yeah, we, you know, a parody of of, of Freudian uh, Freudian analysis, but yeah.
0: At this, by the way, I just it's so rare I have psychiatrists in here. Um, a toilet training thing, <laughs> um, like I, I wrote this chapter in one of my books about social Darwinism, and um, I found this wonderful piece from a psychology journal about about um, Herbert Spencer and the entire thing was about how you could explain Herbert Spencer's libertarian politics by his uh, obsession with his fecal productive powers. I mean, it was like this, all of this crazy potty training potty stuff. Yeah. Is that all just gone or is it just now like a,
1: it's pretty much gone. I mean, these are just so stories. I mean, yeah. obviously, Freud in his oral, anal, and genital stages, you know, that's where. Um, I mean, for, uh, psychodynamic psychotherapy is is alive. You typically have to pay for it. Uh-huh. Um, uh, it's, it's unlikely you'll get that in a public clinic. And I understand why, of course. And a lot of people, believe me, who, who do need public clinics, they have much more pressing issues. I mm-hmm. mean, for example, people I work with in, in a methadone clinic, you know, the question is, you know, how are you not going to use tonight? So we don't want to go back to um, more primitive um, concerns. And you especially don't want to do that with uh, often with people who are not sufficiently in a recovered state because real depth psychotherapy is, is anxiety producing. And when you've Already have a penchant for turning to drugs and alcohol when you right. feel anxious. This is not yeah, yeah. something you want to stir up. Um, but uh, but dynamic therapy is alive and well and uh, enormously helpful for a lot of people. And psychoanalytic institutes, I, I think, it had a little um, a little burst of, of uh, interest in them again. But um, but even there, I, I, I think the days of the uh, you know the austere um, a- analyst or largely over if you yeah. remember in Ma- i mean just a great illustration of it was in, in mad men when Betty would lay on the couch mm-hmm. and the guy wouldn't say anything yeah. or he'd, he'd maybe ask one question if you had a transcript 10 words you know would be yeah. his in, in 50 minutes and um the, and those days i I'd largely over and f- for good
0: yeah i want to ask you about this uh you're an accomplished psychiatrist you follow all this literature stuff. What is your opinion of evolutionary psychology? Is it helpful? Meh. What I mean, like, just how do you where do you put it in the in its explanatory power?
1: I think it's. I think it's helpful. Um, I think uh, um, I definitely think it's helpful, but I have to say, I I I I do think that sometimes. people who promote it are a little too um intense <laughs> yeah, they're they're um they uh they have their own reductionist yeah um I- impulse and uh and after a while it's not even that it bec- it's it's oh okay so that may be an, an insight it is worth um you know incorporating that into the way you you know think about an issue in other words what 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 adaptive function did this one serve i mean right. that is that I think you know I'm going to revise my answer a little bit to say it depends on the question. Yeah, depends on the problem. It could be very, very useful. I've just seen the problem of it being applied almost indiscriminately by people who, you know, who are academics in that. No, okay. I agree. And like um, you know,
0: the, the defending the caveman community. I mean, like like reducing men scrolling through the TV to find a channel to watch to you know they being hunters rather than <laughs> gatherers and stuff. There's a lot of stupid stuff about it. But one of the places I, you know, in part because I've, as you probably a little bit aware, you know, I've been on a bit of a political journey in the last few years um, insofar as I'm more ideologically grounded than I've probably have ever been. But I'm kind of politically homeless because of all the Trump and Fox and whatever stuff. And one of the things that, uh, you know, John Tooby, who's one of the sure. founders of all that stuff, wrote this wonderful essay called The Coalition Instinct, where he was just talking about how human beings have this. I know hardwired is the wrong term but they have this capacity that comes that comes out of evolutionary forces to form coalitions because and it's not it's not just my tribe versus your tribe within the tribe people form coalitions mm-hmm. to gain power and status and all that kind of stuff and one of the things that I found very helpful just to how to think about this is as I sort of exited one kind of tribe is to see how tribal not only sort of the right is but the left is and how they there's so much more symmetry between the two sides that um you know the joke on this podcast it's on the bingo card is the episode of the simpsons where they the simpsons kids are in this war with the shelbyville kids and they find a candy wrapper and they say oh yeah those shelbyville kids they like candy for the sweet sweet taste as if like That's not why the Simpsons kids like it too, but Uh the capacity for us to sort of make what the other side does into a bad thing while we do the exact same thing, Mm -hmm. we forgive infidelity or whatever for our guys, but not, but condemn the other guys for that kind of stuff. I found that, that way of thinking about this stuff, very useful to sort of get out of the the bubble. Um, and I can't remember what the point I was going to make about that, but, um, so Anyway, so on the evolutionary psychology stuff, one of the things that Height and 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 Bloom have written about is that one of the things we have an instinctual, um, some instinctual programming for is reacting to invisible enemies, mm-hmm. oh, yeah. right? And so, um, whether it you know, you know, like I think it's Bloom in one of his books talks about how if you just in experiments, if someone just smells a stranger with bad body over, they become more anti-immigration, right? I mean, like like that kind of thing. And, um, uh, and anyway, I have this theory that the pandemic, which is not something that America has dealt with in over a hundred years and the way our society works is so different than it was a hundred years ago, that it really is an unprecedented thing, um, is making people crazy. And I don't mean that necessarily in a clinical sense, but in the sense that we have road rage going through the roof. We have, you know, all the, you know, people having to be duct taped to seats on planes cause they're going nuts, trying to use the exit. I think a lot of the violence that we're seeing has less to do with defund the police rhetoric and more to do with the fact that people are locked down and they're freaking out. Um, is this just me dabbling in, in, in a BSE kind of way in, in psychiatry stuff? Or do you think that like, some of the craziness of our politics right now stems from the fact that people don't deal well with disease and the social is- isolation and the two combined.
1: Oh, I, I think, no, I think there's a lot to what you say. I think uh, the isolation is a, a, which is ebbing now, but um, but who knows, may increase again, is <clears throat> certainly a powerful uh, negative influence on on human mental well being, um, but the other two things you talked about, yes, an invisible um, any any kind of invisible menace is always more threatening, and anything that's threatening binds people together more, mm-hmm. and um, since uh, and often binds groups to groups with causes together more, um, and then the dis- disgust is is, is a very powerful. Yeah. Um, from an evolutionary standpoint that is incredibly powerful because if you didn't have disgust you would eat that rotten thing and right. and die so that's very important it also implies cleanliness um i mean it's also caught up with that right. i mean and and cleanliness is um i mean you know i mean just look at hitler's you know rhetoric <laughs> i mean it's all about you know vermin and filth and yeah. i mean and those kinds of um <sighs> any that conjures those kinds of sentiments is is going to be something that's really energetically rejected and um, and possibly even exterminate or attempts at exterminate. I'm getting a little dramatic there, I realize. (laughs) But um, but it reminds me um, of um, Pinker's Stephen Pinker's book on gosh, there have been so many um, a few books back. Uh, the history
0: of violence one maybe um, that was it yeah.
1: where he talked about how important um hygiene was mm-hmm. in terms of human relations and 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 that and that's related to you know what what i was just saying about the extent to which t- disgust which is what would be generated if people right. smell bad or look dirty um how how much of a force for uh for, um, anxiety and then hostility that against that person or that group could be. And so any kind of infection, again, you know, it just pings that association yeah. associated with, um, again, cleanliness and then slash disgust. Yeah, so I, mean, I can w- see that having a role in this One too. of the points that
0: height makes is that the part of your brain that's concerned with hygiene is very close to the party we are in that's concerned with sacredness. And you can see how in sort of pre-modern societies, the place where you care the most about hygiene is the places that you consider most sacred, right? I mean, there's a certain, I mean, again, there's some just-so-ness to it, but it makes some intuitive sense. And um, when you think about like the role of women and, and all of these kinds of things, it comes up and it just, that's the sort of thing that I find useful in thinking about a lot of our political debates yeah. these days.
1: It's useful. I, I agree. As long as one doesn't fall into, you know, what's called a naturalistic fallacy, sure. which is sure men are bigger and sure men might even want to take charge of women, right. but no way we can tolerate that kind right. of, yeah, inter sexual aggression. Right. But, no, absolutely. Uh, yeah. And I don't certainly worry you're going in that way, but
0: well, I'm, so, I'm so scared of my wife. How could I? <laughs> <laughs> all right. Sally Satel, thank you so much for being here. We'll put all your stuff in the show notes. And um, I highly, really, really, really recommend that everyone check them out. And thank you for being here.
1: Oh, thanks so much.
0: Okay. So uh, Sally has left the studio and we actually did this in the studio. We did this in the sprawling broadcast complex for the dispatch um here in washington dc it's always nice to be back in here doing these things live um let me know by the way or at least let me know in the comments um if you actually can tell the difference in any way and whether it's a good difference or a bad difference um love sally i thought it was really interesting i as you could probably tell i wanted to go in a bunch of different directions and 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 may well again one day Um, on the, on the hygiene thing, I, 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 did, I didn't want to keep derailing the conversation, but it reminded me of when my, um, when my dad died, my brother and I, we went to the funeral home and to plan the funeral and, um, the funeral director guy, you know, was very polished and nice and considerate and all that kind of stuff. And he said, you know, come sit down, blah, 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 blah. Sorry for your loss. I'd offer you a cup of coffee, but I am barred by law from serving coffee. And my brother and I looked at each other and I think I, I said, you know, um, in the spirit of my late father, um, I can't let that comment go by without me asking what you're talking about. Why are you barred by law from serving coffee? Um, cause that's the kind of thing my dad would find fascinating. And, uh, the guy said, oh, it's, it's basically a progressive era law. It's been on the books for about a hundred years, give or take. Um, because in the late 19th and early 20th century, um, when they would have funerals, they would have the wakes, um, particularly the Irish wakes, no, no disparagement on, 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 the Irish, but like, uh, they would have these wakes at the funeral home. And, um, and so there would be lots of catering and are lots of cooking and food prep going on in the same place where there was embalming going on. And, um, some intrepid public health official recognized that that's just not really a good idea. Let's, you know, let's get the corned beef further away from the bodies on the tables. And so ever since you're not even allowed to have like a coffee maker in New York city, uh, funeral homes, or at least as of, you know, 10 or 15 years ago. I don't know. Maybe they changed that law, but anyway, I thought it was interesting. Anyway. Oh, so on this gift subscription thing, we'll put a link. I think we'll put a link in the show notes about how you can do it. Um, you know, look, I always mention, please become a member of the dispatch community and all that kind of stuff. And just because I repeat it a lot, doesn't mean I don't believe it. And I'm not sincere because I really do believe it. And I really am sincere. It would be great if everybody listened to this podcast who could become um, a subscriber or a member. And if you're already a member and you're grateful for this, um, you know, for all intents and purposes, free podcast, um, and you want to support us more and help us more, um, giving a gift subscription, uh, is not, it's, it's, it's really a two for one kind of thing because you're giving a gift to somebody that you think will benefit from getting it. And you're really giving a gift, to the dispatch you know we are not a 501c3 we're not asking for charitable donations or anything like that um but you know the the help and support of our supporters is still hugely important to us and you know we have big plans about how there will be more perks and advantages that come with being um a member of the dispatch and we're eager to make the increase the value of of full membership or full subscription or whatever term Steve allows me to use these days without activating my pain collar. Um, but, uh, if you can do it and you know, someone who would appreciate it, um, or if you feel like you would yourself appreciate it, um, and you're not already a member, please, by the end of the year, if you could do it, that would be wonderful. Whether it's for Christmas or just, um, in a, in a riot of, uh, winter solstice uh good cheer um and other than that i got one or two more uh podcasts before we're taking a little break over the christmas new year's holiday so i will be back and so i'll just see you next time
1: no you won't this is a podcast